I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is A.B. Short, co-founder of MedShare, an organization that recovers surplus medical equipment and redistributes them to hospitals in the developing world. Six million tons of surplus medical equipment goes unused by hospitals each year. MedShare collects a portion of these and ships them to more than 95 countries. These supplies include surgical instruments, gloves, stethoscopes, sutures, x-ray machines, and wheelchairs. A.B. started MedShare in 1998 in Atlanta, Georgia. He is originally from Mississippi. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. You are collecting unused medical equipment from hospitals that consider this equipment destined for landfills. Why is so much unused equipment thrown away each year? Many times the pressure on the hospital is to have the latest and newest with whistle and bells of equipment. And so there's pressure in a competitive market to keep upgrading equipment. So the equipment they're replacing many times is working perfectly fine. Uh, But there's a very little market uh, for that used equipment in the U.S. because everyone's upgrading. Uh, So we approach the hospitals and say, well, if you're replacing that piece of equipment with a new one, how about giving us the old one? We'll put it to use in an international setting. Hospitals, as a best practice, Uh, They bundle supplies to streamline operating room preparedness. So, you know, they'll, they'll open up a whole packet of supplies, and they might only use a fraction of those supplies. Can you talk about how you're making use of those? Absolutely. Uh... Custom packs are what we're talking about, surgical packs. So each pack is designed for a particular kind of surgery. At the end of the case, there will be a significant amount of product that's left on that back table that never touched the patient. The patient is billed for the whole pack. Mm -hmm. So they cannot use that product on another patient and bill it out again. So historically, that ends up in the landfill. So what MedShare has done is worked with hospitals to place receptacles in the ORs to say, put this unused, still-in-date product in this barrel, and we will redistribute it internationally. You also partner with manufacturers in addition to hospitals. Uh, What kind of defects in the manufacturing process might cause a manufacturer to give the equipment directly to you versus sending it to the hospital? Right. Well, there are a couple of things there. One, there is what I call cosmetic damage. Many times a box, the outer box may be damaged, the corner to push in or a forklift stuck into the side of a box, well, they're not going to deliver that product to their prime hospitals, and then that's brought to MedShare. Why would a hospital not partner with MedShare? Uh, I think initially uh, there was some fear of of, uh, liability issues. Uh, could they end up being uh, sued down the line for something malfunctioning and so forth? Mm-hmm. MedShare is uh, one of the uh, only, I think, MSROs, medical, recover- me- medical supply recovery organizations, that ha- carries product liability. Do you remember one or two stories or hospitals that, that, that partnered with you that helped to kind of start the momentum? Well, first of all, I can say that for the first five or six years, I, I always said I never had a hospital turn me down. And you want to start off at the C-level, at the CEO, uh, and, and explain the concept. All of the hospitals in Atlanta uh, jumped on board. One of the largest, uh, of course, was Emory University Hospital. They realized then that this was a win-win for them because they can then talk about their community involvement. 
The other thing that's happened in our country, and I'm excited about it, of course, is the greening of the health care. So most hospitals have sustainability committees, and so they're very supportive of the MedShare model because it means this has been diverted from the landfills and has been put to human use. You mentioned that uh, you you should approach the CEO of these hospitals uh, to expedite the acceptance process. Was it easy getting those meetings in the early days with these folks? Well, I was very fortunate. Uh, MedShare attracted a very strong and uh, influential board of trustees early, early on. And one of them was a senior partner in a large uh, firm in Atlanta, King and & Spalding. And uh, he would invite the CEOs to come to King & Spalding's private dining room for me to make my pitch. Believe it or not, that environment created credibility for me. Another relationship that was more informal uh, but inspirational was with Bill Fagy, and yes. he is a public health professional who's known for helping to eradicate smallpox. He served as a senior advisor to Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation. Uh, what role did he play for you, even informally? Well, I had lunch with with, uh, Dr. Fagey, and then he, in his gentle spirit, he said, you know, A.B., if you and Bob are talking about collecting stuff and just putting it in an ocean container and shipping it overseas, uh, I'm really not going to encourage that. And we were kind of shocked. And he said, so we said, well, why, why, Dr. Fagey? And he said, well, I I was on receiving end of those containers. And he said 80 to 90 percent of the stuff that we received was junk. He said we could not use it. And he said, if you can figure out how to send what people need and what they're requesting, then you'll make an impact on, on public health in the developing world. This was a light bulb. Of course, you got to know your customer and provide a product for your customer. Right. So you're treating the, the recipients as as consumers. Exactly. Interesting that this Bill Fagey incident coincides with an earlier experience that you had bringing homeless people into your home. Can you describe that? There was a period of time in my life when uh, Ann and I uh, were working with homeless people. And was your wife at the time. Right. A nurse and we were coordinating in a hospitality house in a local church. Uh, and we'd drive every night and pick up homeless people, a particular pickup point they'd come. And one night there was a guy there that uh, we didn't have room for, Ann didn't have room for. And she mm-hmm. picked him up, brought him home. So he mm-hmm. came to our house, which was not uncommon. Mm-hmm. And he, is, he could barely walk. His mm-hmm. shoes had cut into the sides of his feet, and they were infected. And we heard his story. He had gone to the hospital emergency room. Mm-hmm. They had bandaged him, given antibiotics and so forth, but put the same shoes back on that didn't fit. And Ann sat that night and bathed his feet, cut his toenails, and I basically watched him whelp. Uh, but what connected at that point was giving people what they need as opposed to what you've got. Some shelter had shoes, and they were good shoes, and thought they were doing the right thing by giving Melvin those shoes, but they didn't fit. And I think it tied in later with MedShare, that whole sense of knowing what the need is and meeting the need as opposed to giving it because you got it. How did that change your approach? How, how did you ship only what was requested? So we began the process of putting into a database the, all of the 23,000 items that we might have at any one time in inventory uh, and make that available once a, a recipient hospital has been approved for a shipment. So they order. Uh, line item by line item, and then it's custom pull. So every container uh, that goes out is a custom pull container for that particular hospital. Did you learn a lot about shipping in the process? Just absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I knew a little bit. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I was a teamster, uh, worked on the docks in New Orleans, and never thought that would come in handy later in life. But I learned a lot about warehousing. Uh, another point in my life, I worked with Roadway Express, a transportation company, so that came in handy. 
There was a flood in 1979 of the Pearl River, which kind of changed your posture or, and was a pivot moment for you, um, moving from, you know, the transportation company to, you know, the food bank. Uh, can you talk more about that? Well, it, it was. Uh, the, the river came out, and in most cases, uh, the, the, the flood was in the low-income, uh, primarily black neighborhoods. Uh, and so I went to the transportation company that I was working for. We couldn't deliver freight because of the flood. And I said, look, uh, there's a, a, a vacuum. There are no rental trucks available, and these folks are trying to get their property out of their homes before the ri- uh, river rises. And uh, can we, why don't we just offer our trucks as, uh, to do that? It'd be good PR. And they laughed at me, basically. They mm-hmm. said, that's not our business. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I ended up going on a Sunday afternoon and volunteering, making sandwiches mm-hmm. uh, to be delivered to the levees where they were sandbagging. And I spent the evening delivering sandwiches on the levee and all of a sudden, I got back in touch with those inner feelings. This is what I should be doing with my life. Mm-hmm. And so that was a pivotal point for me to move toward um, working for the food bank in Atlanta and then starting other nonprofits. Now, you had no background in healthcare at all. You had worked in the social justice space. You worked at a food bank in Atlanta for mm-hmm. several years. Uh, you even co-founded a cafe called Cafe 458, which basically was a restaurant where homeless people and other citizens could interact. And these homeless people had to make reservations and be guests. And so you definitely had, you know, a social instinct. Uh, but why healthcare? Who introduced you to this idea of uh, injustice or inequity in the medical equipment field? Yeah, a, a dear friend of mine, Andy Loving, uh, who lives in Louisville, Kentucky, called me mid nineties, and he knew I like to start things, and I was an entrepreneur. And he said, you know, maybe there's the same surplus in the healthcare system uh, as there is in the food industry, and food banks have been in, uh, addressing that for years. Very few people are addressing the surplus in the healthcare system. I think that's something you should look at doing. And I thanked him for the call, and I filed it away because at that point I was a stay-home dad and an organic farmer, and it wasn't timely. But four years later, I pulled that information back out, and I said, yeah, this is something to look into. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is A.B. Short, co-founder of MedShare, an organization that collects surplus medical equipment from hospitals and manufacturers in the United States and redistributes them to hospitals in need globally. Unused medical equipment that once would have been discarded as waste in landfills now gets redirected to hospitals abroad and health clinics in the United States. We're talking a bit at 10,000 feet about what MedShare does. I'd like to uh, talk more granularly. Mm -hmm. Can you provide examples of how the organization is changing lives individually? I think of one example of a a doctor in uh, Bolivia, uh, Dr. Goss, an American surgeon trained uh, in Mayo Clinic, and he talked about the lack of gloves. And he said he would literally wear a pair of surgical gloves until they wore a hole in the tip of his Mm -hmm. finger. Mm -hmm. Then he would take scissors and cut a piece of the glove off up at the sleeve and poke it down in there so he could continue to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, many times I've been in the developing world where people would wash gloves, mm-hmm. hang them on a clothesline outside, and use them again. Can you think of doing that here in the U.S.? No, not at all. And so, sometimes people would use plastic bags also? Plastic bags on their hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, plastic bags uh, on delivery tables. Uh, gloves and sutures are one of the key things that are needed worldwide. Mm-hmm. And so MedShare, out of its relationships with hospitals and with manufacturers and distributors, mm-hmm. uh, provides gloves uh, on, on every shipment that goes out. What are some other granular examples? You mentioned this doctor in Bolivia who didn't have gloves. Mm-hmm. What else? You know, there was there was an example, it may have been Ghana, um, 
where they didn't have an infant warmer. And what they were using was a simple incandescent light bulb hung on a cord down close to the baby. And uh, it was a tragic story that, that, that we were told in, in, in that case, that the, bud, the bulb slipped and fell down on the baby and burned the finger, and they ended up having to amputate uh, a finger because of that. And so getting incubators uh, became a high priority for us to get these placed in, uh, in, in clinics and, and around the world. What was harder than you thought in the early days? I think one of the hardest things was, uh, there, there were two of them. One of the hardest things was learning what to turn down. Because you have a tendency to be gracious and accept whatever, especially when you're building a new relationship with a hospital. And we accepted things early on that really were inappropriate. Mm. Uh, and so learning to say no out of a sense of saying, we're saying no because we're showing dignity and respect to the end user, the recipient. What's an example of something that you might have accepted that you no longer? A, a, a very old, outdated piece of equipment. Uh, an x-ray machine, uh, a centrifuge, mm-hmm. analyzer of blood that is no longer supported by the manufacturer. So if it's no longer supported by the manufacturer, you're not going to be able to get to the disposable items you need for it, nor the parts if it breaks down. What was the other you said there was? The other, I think, was realizing how complicated it is to provide training on the biomedical equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, one quick story, I remember one of our board members walked into a hospital in a developing world, and there were seven uh, dialysis machines sitting in the hallway, no one unused. Knew. No one knew how to use Nobody them. Had. Nobody in that hospital knew what to do with them. I think that realizing that not only is there a need in the country for a particular piece of equipment, but you've got to ask the deeper question. Do they have the capability of maintaining it? Uh, and do they have the financial resources to maintain it? And so MedShare has biomedical equipment training right. uh, that's offered. At what point in the lineage did you introduce this training component? That happened probably, I'm thinking, 2005. So we've been around, you know, five or six years at that point. We talk about early relationships with the hospitals. Uh, What were the first couple of countries or hospitals in other countries that accepted uh, the equipment? Yeah, I think the first shipment we ever did was a very simple shipment of mattresses to a mental health hospital in the Caribbean. A local hospital in Atlanta had replaced all of its mattresses, and so we got the, the mattresses they were taking out of service. How about funding in the early days? How did you go about raising capital? <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. Well, it, the first two years we were very fortunate, and my co-founder, Bob Freeman, uh, uh, had an aunt that uh, had a foundation, and we called her Aunt Sally. Uh, and she really did give us the seed money to get started. And, uh, and then we approached the, uh, the Woodruff Foundation in Atlanta, which has a history, this is Coca-Cola money, has a history of not funding startups. They are very, very gracious and very generous with well-established. They made an exception to us, and they gave us a quarter of a million dollars Uh, at the point that we were basically out of money. Mm -hmm. And then they said, this is bridge money. This Mm -hmm. gets to bridge you over, and we don't come back to us, you know, that kind of thing. But they were very gracious. And after that one gift, uh, we were able to hire uh, a development person. Would you say that the the Coca-Cola money kind of legitimized you or or institutionalized you, whereas before it was an ad hoc operation? You're you're absolutely right. I said, you know, once you show that you've you've received funds from the Woodruff Foundation, it it did make 
make it easier. Wasn't there a board member that uh, volunteered to put his house up for collateral or something? Her house, yes. What, 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 what was well, this? that was interesting. It was December, I think it's probably 2002, and it was it, we, we had the grant proposal into uh, Woodruff, and we had not heard back. And we were basically running out of money, and uh, a board member said, look, I, I, I believe in this. Uh, I got a lot of credit on equity on my home. I'm more than happy to take a loan out, and, and uh, let, let's keep this thing going. The grant came from Woodruff about 10 days later, so that didn't happen happen, but that mm-hmm. that's a very true story, and that just is very indicative of the kind of um, board that MedShare was fortunate to have. You're no longer with the organization. Uh, what do you do these days? Um, I travel, and uh, I live in a little farmhouse uh, on a little seven-acre lake. I have a motorcycle and uh, uh, spend some time with my kids. I have a son in Bozeman and went out and went fly fishing with him recently. I have a daughter in Atlanta and spend time with her. So I'm, I'm basically I'm kind of winding down my uh, mm-hmm. professional work. You live in Atlanta now. Um, do you miss Mississippi at all, where you grew up? Um, no, not not at all. Uh, you know, growing up in Mississippi during the 50s and 60s uh, clearly shaped uh, my life. I saw the injustice of uh, segregation and uh, knew deep in my inner soul that uh, it was unjust. Uh, and it was that time in college and later in seminary that uh, uh, I realized that being silent was being part of the uh, institutional racism mm-hmm. and that uh, I didn't feel comfortable being silent anymore. You're the first in your family to go to college. Uh, I was actually the first to graduate from high school for my extended family and go to college and go to graduate school. My dad had a sixth grade education. Mom, I think, dropped out in 11th grade. Your dad, what did he do? Dad worked at a manufacturing company uh, that made uh, acoustical tile. Uh, and he was a foreman there, supervised 35 men. Those tiles were abundant with asbestos? Yeah, yeah. this was back in the day when uh, asbestos was commonly used. So uh, the, the whole plant had, a, had a asbestos in it. Uh, Dad was a heavy smoker, unfiltered cigarettes, and yet still lived to be 86. And your yeah. mom? Uh, Mom ran a family business. We had a backyard business. Uh, interesting enough, I was always embarrassed by that business. It was a live bait business, mm-hmm. so fishing supplies, poles, rods and reels, minnows, worms, whatever. Why were you embarrassed by it? I think you know I was already up from the wrong side of the tracks, if you know what I mean. You know, what like owning a hardware store? You could be proud of owning a hardware store, but selling worms and on the you know I worked in the business. I, sometimes I was digging, counting the worms and putting them in the box and that kind of stuff. So. Well, you know, I, as a kid, you know, who wants a date date guy that's counting worms? You know, so those were those those were those kind of issues. But I, you know, I learned earlier on the importance of work, yeah. and so there were there were takeaways there for uh, for sure that were good. Isn't it amazing what you're uh, embarrassed by when you're yeah. a child? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for asking. My guest has been A.B. Short, co-founder of MedShare. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. <laughs>